Welcome to CFO Insights, the leading podcast for finance professionals in disruptive tech, brought to you by the startup CFO community. I'm Guy Hutchinson, and I'm the host of the podcast, as well as being tech CFO. In this episode, we're going to talk to Shane Leonard, an experienced CFO with a wide-ranging entrepreneurial background. Our listeners will know CFOs aren't just crunching the numbers. For those of us who are CFOs in tech businesses, often working with founders who are so driven and focused on products and achieving early traction that you as CFO need to take on a wider remit, becoming that vital trusted advisor. Shane discusses the optimal path for taking on this important role. Shane, welcome to the podcast. Thanks, Mike. Great to be here. It's fantastic to have you on. Look, you've been um, a member of our group for quite a few years. We quite regularly see you at some of our events and helping out people in Slack. Uh, and um, one of our sort of most kind of prominent members, shall we say, who's got a banking background. Uh, and so you and I were talking a little while back about you know what it takes to be a strategic CFO, to really kind of build trust with the board, with founders. Uh, and we realized that'd be a great topic to pick up on a podcast. Agree, Guy. I feel that there is a very important skill set which CFOs develop with multiple years of experience of building not just trust with the founders and CEOs of the organizations they work with, but expanding that level of trust to the existing investors and stakeholders, and then being able to help the organization be really credible in uh, future fundraisings so that they are well set up for when they need to tap into their existing stakeholders and then expand the stakeholders beyond. And it's a skill set which is one that we, we, we've all developed over time, uh, I feel. At least I've certainly felt that. I'm, I wonder whether you were the same. Uh, yeah, yeah, for sure. I mean, um... My, in my personal experience, I'd say I needed quite a few years uh, working with VCs and working with founders until I got the sense as to what 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 really made them tick and the kind of things that I could I could say and do that would really build you know confidence and trust. Uh, and, and it's not something that you can learn overnight. Although I feel that the things you've done it, before you became that finance leader, like like they they can inform your thinking about what you've got in the toolkit, essentially. So it might be interesting, Shane, if we just talk a little bit about your background and learn about how your career has developed over time. So my career is divided into three sections. I originally started uh, for the first 10 years of my career in finance, in, in banking at organizations like uh, Citigroup and Credit Suisse. And from there, I moved into a entrepreneurial environment, setting up businesses with friends, which was another 10 years of my career, which was predominantly focused in the fintech space, regulated and unregulated. And over the last five years in my third section of my career, it has been mainly as a CFO with some operational elements where I've been that consigliere to the founders of organizations in fintech, uh, uh, SaaS, and in funds. And it's an interesting arc in terms of a career because I come from the non-practice, non-ACCA side uh, of the, uh, the CFO spectrum. And it gives you a different perspective 
uh, and learnings when it comes to being on the job. One where it's not just about numbers and filings. It's it, 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 as we, we often talk about the strategic element uh, of the role that's brought me to uh, where I am today. Yeah, and would you say that that entrepreneurial chapter of your career, that 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 piece where, um, but before you were a CFO, you you are deeply involved in building businesses from scratch. Like, do you think that really has given you a competitive edge in figuring out the mindset of the founder? Because I feel that a lot of CFOs probably sit a little bit more on the risk averse side of the spectrum and that can make it very difficult for them to even understand the motivations of a founder that, that will often be very comfortable with risk well i certainly think it means that i understand their optimism and their focus on their delivering their product because if you're not optimistic and you're not focused on delivery you don't succeed um, as a founder but it, it also allows you give the founders and uh, CEOs a little bit of latitude because there are options, there are directions, there's things that are outside of your control. And we as CFOs live too much in the numbers and the KPI sometimes. And having lived as an entrepreneur, you recognize that you need to sometimes just give it a go and try it and run those experiments. And it's something which we are often uncomfortable with as CFOs, the constant experiments, the constant iterations that we need to do. And that sometimes, you know, you have to do that and fail before you actually get to succeed. So I think it does give you a little bit of a... It does give me a little bit of a unique perspective, having lived on that side of the fence rather than being purely coming from finance directly into the role or coming from practice directly into the role. So that, that's really fascinating. And, and and how how different do you think it is? Like, like say uh, you had just been in investment banking and then you'd come into a startup or a scale-up. Do you think that the, the attitude to taking risk that kind of background is 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 fundamentally different, or do you think that the way that entrepreneurs assess risk um, doesn't really correlate with the way that that, that bankers do? To some extent, I I find that many entrepreneurs aren't calculating risk at all. <laughs> it's it's just all about the product and the delivery. Whereas um, somebody who comes from financial background looks at this from a different perspective. One of um, trans, uh, well, there's two elements. The first is transactional. If you work in finance, it's all about doing transactions. It's all about closing deals. So that element is a very helpful thing to bring across to the entrepreneurial uh, organization. The thing which is less useful at the early stage is that people in finance are focused on optionality. They want to have as many options open to them as possible. They want to spin as many plates as possible because they don't know what is going to work out and they want to be able to pursue all of them. Whereas in, in the entrepreneurial journey, you have to focus, you have to be on that delivery. And that sometimes blindsides people from finance when they come into uh, a startup is that you don't have the time you don't have the resources, and you really have to focus on the one option to ensure your success because you don't have the ability to do multiple things at the same time. Yeah, that is interesting. So, you know, investment bankers ought to be thinking there could be a singular focus when you really put all your eggs in that one basket. 
that you're you know start up your scale up uh and and you know suddenly you can't have the same sort of juggle that you might have had when you had multiple deals going on at any one time and you only needed one to land to see some real kind of reward occur uh when you're in a startup you really are betting on one thing and um that can mean you've got a completely different focus it does it does uh, but but bankers and, and and financiers and people in consulting also have other elements which is uh, which are which are quite valuable is they are much more forward looking they're they look at numbers not as um, data or filings uh, in themselves but they are very much focused on what do these numbers tell me how do i turn numbers into stories uh, what's the narrative that these the, the these deliver and they also think about how do these numbers, how can I generate numbers to deliver to the operations so the operations themselves can make strategic decisions? And it's about being a facilitator of the other parts of the organizations. Um, and, and, and that's that's critical. You know, you are you are a support member of the team, but you are trying to be strategic in that support and delivering what is needed for the organization to make much better decisions. A simple example I could give you one where yeah. is coming, coming into a SaaS business and discovering that the client who paid 100,000 per annum was unprofitable and the one that paid 30,000, the ones that paid 30,000 a year were extremely profitable. And it was really just a matter of doing um, unit economics analysis uh, on the different client sets to realize that some people were just being overserved. But of course, if you're focused on ARR and top line, you're just looking for as big a deal as possible, and you're not thinking about the the the. You're not always thinking about the amount of resources that are being thrown at those clients. Yeah, that 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 emphasis, Shane, that you've mentioned there, where looking at sort of unit economics, whether certain accounts are actually profitable in the end, uh, that, that really is something that the CFO will typically bring. It's a very granular story about exactly what's working, what's not, and which elements of the business you should be trying to repeat and which bits you might seek not to repeat because essentially it's never going to be profitable. Uh, and it's very interesting to hear that, that that particular example. And I guess maybe that's the difference between CFO storytelling and maybe CEO storytelling, where the CEO is looking for the big picture that will be sort of generally pleasing, whilst maybe the CFO is looking to get that really granular insight so that you could inform these decisions about exactly where you should be focusing. Well, it really becomes a very interesting dog and pony show when you're dealing with investors or prospective investors in particular, where you have the person with the vision, the person with the uh, product knowledge, the person who is directly in contact with the end clients, pitching that idea to the investor. And then you have the, the CFO with the numbers and data being able to at uh, to reel off the underlying metrics to the to the investor and it's really fascinating listening to the questions that are coming at you as uh, you sit there with the investors because sometimes you won't hear the question correctly and the ceo does but a lot more often the ceo will be so focused on their pitch that they won't hear the critical question coming in 
to them from the investor. And that's where you have to be really, really diligent as a CFO in those investor meetings to bring the CEO back to answer the actual question that the investor is caring about. Yeah, I, I must admit, actually, Shane, that really resonates with me. I've had similar experiences where uh, I've been out pitching with a CEO. Uh, that person's been quite brilliant strategically and has a, a super vision, and that vision can consume a big part of the pitch. Uh, and then suddenly, out of nowhere, uh, one of the potential investors will throw a couple of granular things, things that are quite detailed about the makeup of the business and what that might mean for the future. And you suddenly feel like the CFO goalkeeper, which is... You just have to jump on that one and field it because because you know that you've got you've got the numbers at your fingertips to provide a decent answer, and it's not reasonable for the CEO to be picking it up when they should be focused on this bigger picture. I, I love the football analogy. You're 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 catching the ball and then you're flinging it straight back out to the striker. Absolutely, yeah, yeah. No, it's um, it's definitely sport out there at times, and potentially uh, uh, a lot more exhausting fundraising now than doing ninety minutes on a football pitch. But uh, well, well, um, that is that is a really fascinating uh, area to think about, and of it being more exhausting because the world we live in today is quite different to the world that um, tech startups have lived in uh, twelve months ago, or or even thirty six months ago. Um, there is a real sea change in the requirements from investors uh, at this moment. Um, I don't know whether you've been finding that in talking to venture people over the last while. Oh, yeah, yes. I, I mean, it's um, it, it, it's probably the primary theme of the time is that uh, there are growth expectations, but perhaps not the same that they were two years ago. Uh and people are accepting that that we're in a window where, you know, particularly for things like B2B SaaS, it, it's much harder to grow now than it was. I mean, even the total addressable market for many of these things is smaller just because the big dogs like the Microsofts and the Facebooks have laid off personnel and they don't have as many seats to service, right? Um, but fundamentally, the theme that VCs have front of mind is what's a sensible amount of burn in the light of the growth that you will deliver and the potential for your exit in two years' time, five years' time, seven years' time. And I think that that's certainly consuming um, a good deal of um, space in venture. Uh, and, and CFOs are having to behave, I think, completely differently because of it. And they need to be building models that allow them to demonstrate that, that you know, either you can bring the burn down to something that's very, very manageable and look sensible in the light of the, the the much tougher funding climate or you need to demonstrate that in six months in nine months month, in six months in nine months uh you could even make this thing you know profitable and cash flow positive so uh it, it's it's very much taking cfos back to the fundamentals as to what it means to be a finance leader I, I totally agree. We, the, the fundamentals of the role are, are are now the real focus. And yes, we have an environment which is now improving. You know, interest rates are stabilizing. Inflation is coming down. Venture partners have stabilized their portfolio over the last 12 months. They're back out on the hunt. They understand what they want to do with AI. But with all of those, uh, that stability and forward-looking focus returning, there is one 
meaningful change that is appearing now in the market, which is the exit. And the w- w- whether it be um, the U.S. going after Amazon, whether it be the U.S. going after Google, whether it be uh, other other elements, the very large players who have been big buyers of uh, of tech startups are now being hamstrung in their ability to acquire businesses. So, from an exit perspective, we as CFOs need to be thinking about. Um, it's not a fang exit or it's not a large tech exit that is guaranteed if we are a success and that will impact multiples ultimately oh yeah for sure now, my 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 personal sense is that uh there is MA happening not necessarily at super exciting valuations and if you were the kind of business that did a c round in 2020 2021 it might even be a valuation that's below uh, what your C round investors had, you know, put in at. Uh, so, so there's lots of challenges with that type of uh, M and A activity. I think the second theme is you're quite right. You know, it's completely unreasonable to think that uh, the Fang businesses are going to Hoover up, you know, tens if not hundreds of interesting EU domiciled tech businesses that are year six to ten, right? Which is what your VCs have been dreaming of for the last decade yeah. almost. Uh but it's it's just like that just doesn't stack up. Uh and it doesn't matter what 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 data points you would look at, it, it will never stack up. And that does mean that things like private equity coming in uh essentially to buy out your VCs and to have um that type of exit, which which is a completely different outcome for the founders, for the CFO. Um I, I think that will become much talked about in the forthcoming year or two. Uh, and I expect to see many of our members, because most of the people in the startup CFO group are VC are, are in VC-backed businesses, I think we're going to see quite a few people ending up in a PE-backed business because that's going to be their exit. I think, I think you're right. There's this whole collection of growth funds uh, here, here, here in, in in London, who are very keen to take a controlling stake in a business, they do roll ups, and then once the business has crossed a material level of EBITDA and cash flows, they're then able to flip it to the next PE person or to the market, and we we are seeing increased activity in the public markets as well. So, so there are. Uh, there are there are lots of different options here, but I think you're right. We probably will all as CFOs find ourselves working for a PE shop at some stage in the next five years. Yeah, 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 yeah. I can I can see that being a thing, and uh, potentially changes the character of VC as well, because obviously their their sort of portfolio approach is to have a certain number of um, really big outcomes, and if those dilute or are, are less big, because there's a certain level that PE. Uh, is prepared to pay because they're not going to have synergies the way that a, a Facebook or a Microsoft might have those things. Uh, yeah, it could it could even change um, a little bit the shape well, of this, this. Is this is probably a difficult conversation for CFOs to have with their founders and with their stakeholders, um, and I think that is one of the interesting areas that both you and I have spoken about in the past is as you are in this seat for an extended period of time, 
you increasingly find yourself having to have difficult conversations with um, with founders, and it's 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 something which I uh, never enjoy, but I think it's something which is really really critical for CFOs to develop an ability and a reflex on how to do that, and and it ranges. It ranges from these ideas like discussing where the next funding is coming, where is the exit going to be, when are we going to be able to raise money, what changes do we need to make to the business today in order to be able to get to that next funding round. And I've even have it all the way down to having to sit down with uh, with, with, with a CEO uh, founder and say, it's time we shut the business. And these aren't easy moments. Um, and I think it's something which is worth um, us exploring a little bit further. Yeah, Shane. So those are great topics, and that and that's kind of like the the trust bucket, right? So you know, if it's you, if it's I, if it's any of our members, you go into a new company, uh, and realistically, the most important relationships that you need to foster are that with the CEO, founder, and that with the board, and. The board will change over time because you will do for the fundraising and the composition of the board will, will, will undoubtedly change. And you might have a chairman, you might not have a chain, you, you might not have a chairperson. Uh, but the things that you're doing to um, build trust, like like whether that's handling these, having to go through the difficult conversations with the founder, or even find a way to air that and to make sure that that's thoroughly covered in the board meeting, like those things are slightly different that a CFO would do. Like how how have you found that, Shane? That that, that you need to shape. The way that you do things to build trust with the different stakeholders often the number one stakeholder for you is that founder ceo or or his co his co-founders because they will typically have more than 50 percent of the business um when you are in series a and series b and you've been hired for a particular role which is to deliver on the numbers and it's really important to build trust quickly by looking at those high impact areas, um, much better budgeting, much better management information packs, great presentation of KPIs, um, filings being done on time, board packs which are delivered three days before the board meeting, not three hours before the board meeting. And to be able to deliver that level of um, of success in a high impact and quick way, you really have to become a data sponge and a document sponge during those early 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 days uh, in the seat. But but uh, but but as everyone who's listening to this knows, uh, life is not just a numbers and data game, and it's really critical to build relationships at every level of an organization, not just your own finance team, not even with the ops folks, the other senior leadership, but right across an organization. And I'm a great proponent of hybrid and in office. I really, really like being there and the serendipity of working alongside other people, being visible, being personable, being available to other people. And I find that that really, really helps because you can very quickly show um, difference versus the past because it becomes extremely noticeable to the co-founders if 
the data is at the fingertips. If you become the go-to person on key information, if the board is messaging the CEO and saying, that was a great data pack, that was a REL one run meeting, I am really happy with uh, the person you've brought in. So there, it, it, it is, it is, there, there isn't a set way to build that trust with the stakeholders. Um, but it is, it is, it is something which is just a, you know, a, a slog. Um, but it's a fun slog because you're you're learning about this new business that you've joined in doing it. There is a danger that comes from the on the on the board and the the the, the investor side, and something which I've always had to be very careful about is you often, if you come from finance you will sometimes find yourself a lot more aligned in your style of personality with the venture investors than with the CFO, CEO, who will often be coming from a tech, a technical background or a product background. And you have to be careful to remember that although you serve all stakeholders, the critical stakeholder is your is your CEO and your founders. And you have to make sure that you don't become the venture person's insider um, at the organization. And it's a critical thing to make sure that you, 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 you're you able to manage that balancing act between the two. I don't know, have you have you ever felt yeah, a lag I, between I, the two sides? I, I've had similar experiences, actually. I think um, if you were introduced by one of the investors, one of the venture funds, uh, that is a danger that, that that you could be seen as um, having been sort of placed there by the investors, uh, and that you're the sort of adult supervision. I think people occasionally say, uh, and and that's not at all ideal. Although it's understandable why that happens, it's not at all ideal. But, but but circling back, Shane, to some of the points that you've made there, I think a lot of our listeners would be um, really focusing on the point you made about being a sponge, and really driving that through to making sure that you're selecting the right KPIs and you're building a narrative about what's going well in the business, what's not going so well in the business out of those KPIs and having the same kind of remit on the planning. And I'm actually curious just to take that back to um, some of your experience. Like, have you had experiences where it was critical for the development of the business and, 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 and the management with the board, et cetera, from just accepting that the business might not have been looking at the right KPIs for some time and having to accept that some of those should be retired and that you should be focusing on new metrics? Well, that often happens when you're sitting down with the budget that ha or the forecasts and business model that the CEO himself had designed, if you're at a Series A business, when he did his first raise. And you realize that the cell dragging across the spreadsheet was, um, you know, wasn't a well thought out process. Um, that there was either too much optimism on revenue and too little focus on costs, or there was a decision to project four different revenue lines rather than focus on the one revenue line, and. Uh, it, it it it's 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 where you're having to deliver hard advice to somebody who is being breathtakingly optimistic and rosy-eyed at every stage uh, externally uh, because they need to raise the money, but that then starts to color their internal vision 
uh, when when it comes to uh, looking at the data and the OKRs that they need to uh, deploy to. So it is something that I found happens. And the way I dealt with that is rebuilding the, for, the forecasts, rebuilding the model, and getting into the granularity of every single line item. And before they know it, they've understood that this is going to cost a lot more. This is going to take a lot longer and that they need to start reconciling with themselves that um, it's a lot harder to do what they want to do. And it's going to probably require a much greater partnership with their existing investors and more capital to get where they want to go. Um, I think it's all about that hockey stick. The problem with the hockey stick forecast is they always move out. And it's the 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 danger of having an internal model and an external model, something which I really don't like doing. I like having the same model internally as externally. And I don't wish to be dis I don't I don't like when people wish to be disingenuous on their forecasting. Yeah, it's a good point, Shane. I, I must admit, you mentioned um, hockey stick curves. I've always found whilst you can see it in a number of the sort of 10 to 15 year outcomes for some of the glitterati of Silicon Valley, the reality is that that doesn't mean that, that all tech businesses can achieve that. And it also doesn't mean that's the only way that you would see success. I mean, I, I've seen plenty of businesses that did incredibly well, where you've got periods of steep growth and then you've got periods where you grow less deeply and you're probably doing other things maybe working on margins or perhaps economically it's a difficult climate uh and if you look at the chart it, it really isn't a hockey stick it certainly doesn't you know resemble one um but it does look like good growth and i think at some level some of the silicon valley rhetoric is is almost destructive because it sort of can fixate some founders on things that are just not realistic things to seek to achieve yeah, that's true. And even product launches aren't hockey sticks because you have to do a test launch. You have to you get the initial buzz of everybody testing out the product if it's a SaaS product, and then people go cold. So, so even things like product launches aren't hockey sticks. So you are right. It's it it it's about the marathon uh, that you have to run, um, and uh, that that that's sort of one of those. Those those um, th those points that's important because you often find yourself when the CEO or co-founder starts getting tired, you have to be the person to encourage them, um, because it's not all the certain that when they go home they're going to get encouragement from their other half, who's probably looking at them wondering why on earth they're still doing a startup. Um, you as the fellow senior leadership have to try and uh, make sure that they don't get down sometimes. So there is actually uh, an emotional side and you, you do uh, to to being that consigliere, that advisor to the founders and uh, CEOs. Yeah, that 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 piece where uh, over time you are the trusted one, the one, the one that, that that perhaps knows a bit more than other other members of the C-suite about what's actually happening and where the state of mind is of the founder, and that 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 is a truly special thing when you achieve it as a CFO. And uh, it's a very interesting point to focus on. Uh, brilliant. And uh, and Shane, you know, we're living through a period of time where I think the zeitgeist at the moment is that 
being a CFO is going to fundamentally change. I mean, like the, the elements that we've spoken about, the piece around building trust and storytelling and making sure that the business is focused on the right things. Um, I think that all remains the same. The, the, the bit that's changing very quickly is the degree to which everybody believes that AI essentially changes the finance machine, like some of the machinery about how you do AP, AR, how a bill was paid, how are things reconciled, how do you build your accounts, how do you build a commentary for your board pack? Um, how do you see that, that, that piece changing over time? Well, both, both you and I have been playing around with these tools for, for the last six months or so. And to some extent, you could feel underwhelmed by what they're doing at the moment but the but the the signs are are there as to how powerful these are going to be and anyone listening to this podcast has seen how technology has already transformed our roles the bank feeds the order reconciliation the payroll apis the tax filings the forecasting tools all of this stuff were already really you know, for for finance people, we're all pretty forward thinking in our embracing of technologies. And I, I agree that this is going to be a fundamental changer for us, that we will, but, but, but it's, a, it, it's a hunch that it will be about automation, that we will see an acceleration in the capture of data. We'll see an ability to create accounts in real time. Um, anomalies will be spotted by the, by, by, uh, the AI. Benchmarking versus peers will be easier. Gathering data feeds that are critical to product launches, which are non-financial, and helping build up those forecasting models. And doing something which in finance is called now casting, where you're able to forecast in real time based on the data that's coming in, is something that we should be able to do. Um, so it could make our life easier, uh, I, I, I think. I, but I, but I think there's there's a second side to this: is that although it could make our life easier, I fear we will be drowning in data. We will have so much access to information and data that it will actually also be harder, and we're going to be inundated with that. And this is where the years of experience and the strategic focus will be important because we're going to have to be able to identify what is critical in a massively larger sea of information. And that's going to be much more complex for us to do, is getting to what is critical in this massive increase in noise. I don't know whether you feel the same. Uh, yeah, I I see it similarly. I, I mean, my my personal view is, Perhaps slightly different, Shane. I, I, I think there's a there's 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 one thing that I think will be quite incredible when it's achieved, which is the piece around um, giving your metrics to an AI and allowing it to recommend one whether you're looking at the right measures for your type of business, uh, and two whether um, you're visualizing them in a manner that really leads to um, well-informed you know decisions and understanding right I, I i kind of feel that there's something in the um the kind of decision support element that that, that i think will come and then actually i i, I to, to, to some degree i 
I agree with the swimming in data point, but actually the, the, the point that I'm concerned about is that you could build a kind of a sense that the CFO's job is to squeeze as much overhead out of the finance team as possible and start <laughs> doing the maths on it. Like, okay, so you might optimize your AI to handle the purchase ledger elements more efficiently. Uh, and you could be spending quite a bit of time on that and celebrating in your board meeting that you squeezed another three hours out of your time spent reconciling payments each week. And it's like, wow, so we save, we save the company 120 quid. Brilliant. Yeah. And that repeats every month, does it? Fantastic. And that's not what winning looks like. And, and I think there's a little bit of a danger that AI points too much towards saving costs in, in what are already like not, not massive overhead costs rather than optimizing on, say, growth and strategy and some of the things that drive more value. Well, I, I, I think you're right that we as CFOs should focus on the top line uh, drivers and the strategic decisions, giving giving those KPIs to the operations so they can understand their product launches, their scaling, uh, their investment needs, their staffing needs. I think that is going to be where it's going to be much more powerful because in technology, the only thing that really counts is top-line growth, as long as you've got your unit economics right or a path to positive unit economics. Uh, because once you have strong growth at the top line, uh, the cash flows will come once you hit that scale. So I, I, I agree with that. I, I think the other thing is that um, until there's singularity, AI will not be replacing critical thought. And critical thought... Uh, is a combination of uh, hard knocks and hard work and experience and your human intuition. And the chances that an algorithm are going to be replacing human intuition anytime soon is, is seems unlikely. Yeah, I would I would say that that that, that feels right. And, and it feels right for, for business functions generally, not just the CFO function. Exactly, exactly. Uh, yeah. Absolutely. Brilliant, Shane. Look, um, it's been really enjoyable to talk through all of these elements. I mean, we've, we've, we've covered a lot in um, 30, 35 minutes. I mean, just just, just so interesting to uh, understand how important it is to kind of be that sponge and to soak up all that knowledge to be able to turn your KPIs, your metrics into really sort of clear storytelling so that the way that you run the business is, is really evident um always focusing on that you know top line growth uh and making sure that you really invest in building trust and building that cfo founder relationship so it's a trustworthy place where anything can be talked through um it's been really good to have you on the podcast so thank shane thank you well, for joining us well, I've really enjoyed it, Guy. And I have to say, you've built the best community of CFOs in tech uh, that's out there. And I'm really enjoying seeing you later on this evening at one of the great startup CFO in-person events, which are always uh, a real pleasure to be at. Shane, that's very kind of you to mention that. Um, yeah, we've got a, a fantastic little summer um, party this evening in London. So uh, hoping to be running similar things in Amsterdam and Manchester and Bristol uh, in the forthcoming months. So uh, yeah, lots of exciting things coming. Well, I'm not, I'm not surprised that the network is expanding into uh, new cities with, with, with such events. It's, it's such a great community. So thank you very much. Brilliant, Shane. Thank you for being on the podcast. All the best. 
You were listening to CFO Insights brought to you by Startup CFO. If you're a finance professional working in disruptive tech and would like to join our global network, visit our website, startupcfo.tech, to learn more. This podcast was part of our CFO Insights series of discussions. And if you want to learn more about the Startup CFO group, follow us on LinkedIn to learn more about our community and the upcoming events. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast.